Warning, this is an explicit episode with adult themes and language. Please put your earphones on and listen to this in private. Unfortunately, Tasnim will not be able to join us for this session. Instead, we will have an expert guest and an anonymous sister who shares her harrowing story. Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast is our own and not representative of anybody's or organization. This topic is triggering, so please be aware of that. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as a medical or mental health advice to treat yourself or others. Please consult your own physician for any diagnosis. For the sake of anonymity and to avoid unintended slander, no names or locations have been mentioned. Our guest name is also an alias. Please note we've kept this conversation as authentic as possible and the intention behind this candid conversation is to bring to light the serious issues that nobody openly talks about. The question to ask ourselves is, what exactly is sexual and spiritual abuse? Nikita, it's time for our podcast. Can you hurry up? Taz, I'm coming. Jude has the hoover on. You can't stay with me. You have to go to bed now. Yeah. Good night, Good night, Good night baby. Good night, children. Let's play Lego. Sorry? Five minutes. Come on, let's Good night, You can't stay with me. Yalla. You need to stop playing. I'm Nafisa. And I'm Tasneem. Grab a cup of tea or coffee and some snacks and join us for a chat after hours. Just two Muslim mums kicking back, having fun. And talking about life, relationships, family, motherhood and more. Welcome to the madness that is our lives. Salams and welcome to Not Another Mum Pod. This episode is part two, where we hear a brutally honest account of sexual abuse. Sister Uzma will be joining us to share how a renowned member of the Muslim community took advantage of her. And with the help of a trained counsellor specialising in sexual abuse and cults, will explore how we can protect our loved ones from this happening to them. If you haven't heard the first part, please do go back to notanothermumpod.com and listen to episode 84, part one, when Uzma told me the summary of it and she told me towards the end of the conversation who it was. I almost, you know, I wanted to cry and it stayed with me the whole night so I can't imagine for Uzma how she begins to deal with not just the abuse but the fact that it was her own grandfather who did this to her. So we're just going to come back to your story Uzma. Now that we know who he is and we've worked out the dynamics, when your grandfather passed away how did you feel straight after and then when did you A, finally speak up or B, realise that it had affected you more than you knew at the time? Uh, when he passed away, I did kind of feel sad because although he wasn't good to us, but he was good to other people. So he was a very strong pillar. He was a very well-respected man. Not as sad as I would feel with someone who I was really close to, but I was still sad. I didn't process it because the abuse has stopped when he was ill. So I think that I just put it behind me and I moved on. The first time that I realised that it's affecting me now was when I was last year of my degree. That's when I actually got engaged to be married. And do you know, obviously, when you're engaged, you think of some things and you find natural attraction to your fiancé and stuff. Although we weren't on speaking terms at that, I was a really shy person. <laughs> but the thing is, it did affect me and slowly I started to get depression and I realised that 
I, I was getting afraid or I was scared. I don't know how to explain that feeling, but I started to go into depression. And although I was a really good student, I didn't do well in my last year because I got engaged at the beginning of the year. I didn't speak to anyone about it. I was acting fine, but when deep down I knew I wasn't, I wasn't able to concentrate on anything. I passed it. So I started a postgraduate course as well. And I said, okay, I have a year till I get married. Maybe it will help me professionally. I was doing okay, although it was quite stressful. I was doing fine, but the depression was getting at me, especially the closer I got to the wedding, the more depressed I got. Can I just ask, how did you know you were depressed? How did you recognize that you were depressed? One of the reasons was I wasn't able to concentrate. And if my parents asked me that, okay, let's go to this, let's do this as a family, and I wanted to sit out. I didn't want to watch a movie with them. I didn't want to read books anymore. I didn't want to do anything that I enjoyed doing. I always covered it up by saying, oh, do you know, this is so stressful. The course is so stressful. I want to do really well in it. I always covered up with that with my parents. And they knew I was old enough to make my own choices. So I knew that these were signs of depression because I wasn't feeling well enough to Yourself. do it. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't feeling yeah. myself. I wasn't happy from inside. And did you make that connection to what had happened to you and the fact that you were getting married at that time? Or no. you just was bewildered? No, I didn't know why it all of a sudden everything started, uh, like I started to feel so depressed when I was fine for all these years. And the closer I got to the wedding, the worse it got, to be honest. I've, well, I can say it openly, but I failed my postgraduate because I just couldn't concentrate the last few months. I let it go. I completely let go and I just failed it. And obviously I wasn't proud, but I, I didn't even tell my parents because the results were supposed to come out after I got married. So I didn't want to spoil it. But I also wanted to get married. It wasn't that I was trying to avoid it. But obviously I think you can imagine what happened after I got married. Yeah, what happened? Tell us. It, when the intimacy started, it's not that I stopped my husband, but it I think he felt it as well that I was kind of disconnected and I wanted to cry. I literally did. The first time when you were being intimate, what was going through your head? At that point, did you connect the trauma that had happened to you as a child to how disconnected you were feeling at that time? Uh, no, I didn't. Not the first instance. No, I think it was about a week later. And it was because obviously we were newly married and it just started to hit me really bad that, okay, I'm going to say this, but I didn't want my husband to touch me. And it came became so bad that I had sleepless nights. I was employed at that time. I wasn't doing, well, I was doing my job properly, but I didn't want to be there. And then it came to a point where I was crying constantly, not sleeping. I would get scared. I would think that there was someone in my room when it wasn't. And Aww. that someone was my grandfather. Right. So seems like what had happened was that it actually triggered your tra trauma responses. So yeah, it took you back. I mean, I was also going to go back to, you know, when your grandfather was at his last moments and stuff, you said you felt confused. And I think there is this thing about, you know, your grandfather being your protector and also, you know, your sort of abuser for a child and even as an adult as well. It's a very difficult thing to actually come to terms with, you know, especially when our parents, and especially if a parent or a caregiver or, or you know, your grandfather is actually supposed to be somebody who is protecting you, but actually he's also abuser as well. It, it's a really difficult thing to come to terms with. Um, but it seems like, I mean, I don't know, did you at all sort of grieve this process at all? Did you cry? As I said, not after I got married. That's when it hit me hard and I used to just cry all the time, nonstop. 
Yeah. So there was no grieving process when he passed yeah. away. So yeah. What? How did your husband react to what was happening? Did he think, oh, we're newlyweds, you're being shy, or did he figure out? I think something was wrong. Yeah, he did figure out something was wrong. First, he thought it was because I was stressed about the job, but because I was off from job, I, my GP um, sanctioned some uh, holidays for me, sick leave and stuff. That she said that I was depressed because the way I spoke to her and we told her that I can't sleep and it was two weeks to I couldn't sleep so she referred me onto the services and she asked me to take some leave but what I did instead was walked into my boss's office and told him that I'm not coming back tomorrow I can't do it anymore mm. and then I called my husband and I was like this is what I did at first he did think for the first two days he did think that it was the job that was stressing up me with newly married life new new responsibilities and a full-time job but then when I still didn't get better and I was seeing someone in my room, I used to feel like there's someone trying to come at me. And uh, I started to get some professional help as well. And I spoke first time that I did, I told them that this was the person that I was seeing. And they said, when they questioned why I was seeing just him and not anyone else and why I was scared to see him. So so just to backtrack a bit, so you were physically seeing him, not thinking that there's someone in the room other than your husband, but you were actually seeing him in your mind? Yeah. Like you were thinking, wow. Yeah. And were you getting any flashbacks I didn't as well? understand that. I was, yeah. Right. So it seems like a bit of PTSD that's coming through. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I remember I used to wake up shivering if I fell asleep for five minutes. I used to wake up shivering. Can you please stop? him and that's when my husband realized there was something wrong it wasn't just my job or anything and when I spoke to professional people I told them about the trauma the one way they did say was that you should speak to your husband and maybe not tell him who he was but maybe say that you went to through something similar and you might be surprised at his reaction but one thing I had in my mind was we're newly vet what if he leaves me yeah what would the society think it's another fear yeah but then I realised when my husband saw that I was getting quite agitated every time I fell asleep and stuff. And But once I got some amount of professional help, I ended up telling him one night. And alhamdulillah, and I can't thank him enough for that. He was so supportive. The way he held me together, the way he helped me through this, alhamdulillah, he has been, I have to say that I don't think anyone would probably, after hearing all this, anyone would have been able to help me in such a way that he did. Alhamdulillah. I'm so happy for you. May Allah protect your marriage and give you many years of, of happy life. You deserve it after everything you've been through. So from telling your husband, did you then start to speak up about it openly to other family members like your mom, your dad, your brothers? Uh, no, to till date, my dad still doesn't know. And because my grandfather wasn't a very active part of his life, even since his childhood. So he's seen lots of difficulties and he's seen how his father treated us. And I didn't want him to think another bad thing about him. I didn't tell my brother or my mom until one day. Um, one thing that happened was during my treatment, although I was quite lo a lot better, I uh, felt pregnant. So I stopped my tablets and everything. And um, it obviously was going to come back somehow because I wasn't healed properly yet. So I had an outburst at my mom's house. My husband was at work. I had an outburst at my mom's house for something very small. I don't even remember what it was, but I remember it was pointless. So my brother sat me down and he was like, you've been going through depression. We know that. But what's wrong with you? We want to help you. Uh, everybody else left the room. My dad was upstairs anyway. So my sister-in-law left the room. It was just me, my mom and my brother. My brother shut the door. And he was like, just please tell us we want to help you. And I told my mom and my brother and uh, they were 
I don't even know how to describe it. I think they were probably in a worse state than I was. My mom, she was like, I don't understand why you didn't come to me. You knew I was your friend. Uh, because I was the only girl, I was uh, the only sister. I was so close to my mom. She was like, only you just came to me and told me that you didn't feel safe around him. And I would have done anything to get you out of there. And I told her, I was like, I didn't want you to be even like, you know, more stressed about me because you were already going through so much. I didn't want you to make it worse for you. And she was like, there was nothing that would have made it worse. And she was like, I blame myself now. Why didn't I see that coming? And I didn't know how to explain to her, no, it wasn't you. <laughs> it wasn't you. If anyone was to blame, it was him. But alhamdulillah, after uh, I gave birth to my son, it did come back again. But then that's the time when I start, uh, realized that I'm going into depression again. And it was a bit a mix of both uh, the postnatal depression as well as the PTSD. So I went and spoke to the health visitor and everything. And she fast tracked me into getting some help, some therapy. And it took me six months to actually heal properly. Six months of therapy until I was able to speak out about it. I still haven't told my father, but yeah. Oh, it's such a, you know what? when you were telling me about your mum's reaction and that you couldn't describe it I, I just almost felt like I was a you know I just thought she must have been devastated, devastated. yeah she was she was uh, and I, I just and I felt even more guilty but then she came up to me a couple of days later and she was like why are you feeling guilty about it she was like yeah my reaction because I didn't know how to react at that time maybe I shouldn't have reacted like this in front of you but she was like don't feel guilty because you've come through a long way and now she managed to connect all the dots as well why I didn't do well in my degree, why I was a bit more isolated or I wasn't doing things with them. It wasn't because I was busy. <laughs> so she realised that I was going into depression and she was like, I wish I saw signs. And my brother, I'm really close to him, very, very close. And he's been my rock. Like the th difficulties we've been through, even as a child, he was very responsible and very mature. And he was like, even if he came to me, I would have found a way to help you. He was like, you should have just spoken out to me. Okay, if you didn't want to disturb mom and dad, he could have come to me and I would have helped you. And he started to blame himself that why I didn't see it when we were sharing yeah, a room. But the guilt uh, that would kill me as your brother, I know exactly how he would be feeling. Exactly. So, but Alhamdulillah, all three of them my husband, my mom, and my brother I don't know if he's told my sister in law, I didn't mind him telling her, but I don't know. But they've all been like my very strong support system and once I had them and all this therapy again alhamdulillah I got to a point where I am now so. alhamdulillah. what would you say looking back at your whole journey what was the most significant um healing moment that you've had where do you feel like actually now my life is turning a corner um I would have to say first the first point was when my husband was really supportive and he told me that because I've been through so much trauma and I opened up about him he respects me even more and I was like, there are good people in the world and I can trust. I think there were three different points and three different stages. But second one, when I spoke to my mom and my brother about it and realized that, okay, they don't blame me. And I felt guilty that I shouldn't have told them because they're feeling guilty now. But Alhamdulillah, we got through it as a family because I kept reminding them it wasn't their fault. Alhamdulillah, that was the second part because they ended up supporting me rather than like, you know, telling me that, no, it was your fault. You should have spoken up at that time or it was your fault that you let him so close to you and all this stuff. So Alhamdulillah, um, she wasn't like there or neither was my brother. And the third and final was during my therapy, my a therapist made me relive a certain moment and that was quite major in my uh, memory. She made me relive it every day. She was like, you have to. She was like, I will stop when I realise that it's not working. But 
I relived that moment again and again and to a point where I understood that it wasn't, none of this was my fault. I was only a child. I was just going to ask, that was literally going to be my next question. Did you blame yourself? No, I never. At any point? I did at the beginning when I started to get a severe depression. I did at the beginning that it was my fault. I shouldn't have let him come near me. I should have uh, maybe hit him or do, did something to him. But then I realised that none of that would have made anything better. Now that I started to realise and relive those moments again, I realised that if I did any of that, it would have backfired and it would have made him more angry or he could have done it a lot worse. So, yeah, but I never blamed myself until just for that few probably a few weeks I would say but alhamdulillah yeah alhamdulillah I've gone through it now and I've come out from the other side. What was significant about that moment that your therapist made you relive so many times? It was the time when uh, I could have done something really bad to him he was in a position where I could have hurt him really badly mm-hmm. but it's... and why didn't you? Again, for those same reasons. Same reasons, I would be questioned the why I actually did that, to be honest, because he would have been really hurt at that time. And people would question everyone that how did it happen? And if I did it, if my parents, well, they would know that I did it. But why did I do it? But that's when I was like, I'll have to speak out. And do you know that all happened in within a few minutes? And I went through all these calculations in my head within those few minutes. And um, I didn't do it. And I chose, I chose a slightly less uh, violent option and managed to get away from that situation. So yeah, why that memory and not any other? All the other memories are, they do come back at some point, but that memory was because I think that if I didn't remove myself from that place at that time, maybe I just felt that it's something worse was going to happen. It wasn't just going to be touch it could have gone a lot more because the way he was reacting at that time was a bit more I don't know how to say but more stronger and more aggressive aggressive yeah so I just realized like that's why I was like okay I need to somehow leave this place because it was a moment where I realized that something terrible was going to happen if I stayed in that room Ramsey, do you have any perspectives to add to that? I mean, I think what you're describing is possibly the most traumatic of those memories because, mm-hmm. um, because you know, it, you just felt that it was going to be the worst of them all. So probably more trauma-inducing. We spoke about lots of things during therapy and that was the one thing that I used to keep coming back to. Not doing it on purpose, but unintentionally. I used to come back to that moment. So, How soon after that did the abuse stop? Uh... I don't know, to be honest. I think we were still in the midway of during those couple of years. Because you had that intuition that things were going to get worse and the way he was behaving and he could have taken it to the next level. Did that continue or did it sort of just go back to not being as aggressive? No, it went back to not being as aggressive because once again, I avoided being alone with him. As much as he could. Yeah. Okay. So I want to share some uh, recovery tips, I think, in regard to these sort of situations. I mean, it seems like Sister Uzma, alhamdulillah, had and has a really strong support system. But a lot of people who do get abused, unfortunately, don't. Um, so I think that the road to recovery really is what, what Sister Uzma has described possibly is just first removing yourself from that situation. Of course, as a child, that's very difficult. And definitely as you know, adults as well, so it's usually very difficult as well. But the recovery 
you know, it, usually it doesn't start until you actually remove yourself from, from that sort of situation. And then sort of processing the trauma that's gone on. I mean, some people may be able to move on if the trauma is not as significant. Um, so they might be able to do it by themselves cognitively or emotionally if they have the right system. But usually with these sort of things, it's really a good idea to get some professional help in order to integrate those traumatic memories as Sister Uzma has done with her therapist as well. I think also as well, you know, um, not identifying with the with the abuser because the personalities, sometimes what tends to happen is that people who do get abused, they, they sometimes do identify with the abuser. It's called the Stockholm Syndrome where you sort of, um, you know, in order to be able to almost fit this in your mind, you tend to make excuses for the abuser. So I think one of the things is to hold, again, the abuser responsible for what they've done and not to take that blame on you because somebody has to take the blame. In my mind, if you um, don't hold the abuser responsible, then you may take the blame on yourself. So, you know, give the blame where it belongs, leave the blame or put the blame where it belongs. And also as well to um, work through the triggers, you know, usually what happens is after these sort of experiences, trauma takes perhaps um, six weeks to even a couple of years to actually manifest itself. So it's not surprising that Sister Uzma, after so many years, started to get PTSD and specifically around when she was getting married and the thought of intimacy. So, you know, dealing and managing those triggers as well, you must do especially if you're getting PTSD. I think also as well, there is a sort of, um, you know, a grieving process that goes on that some people tend to shy away, especially within our community. There's sometimes not really a process for grieving or we're not allowed to grieve as such. And sometimes they say, you know, you, know you, you cry for three days or you grieve for three days and then you move on. But actually grieving, to, you know, it's different for everybody. Some people take a couple of months some people take, you know, a couple of years. So actually grieving, even if it is, you know, a toxic and abusive sort of relationship or an abuser, actually grieving what you have lost in all of these years is, you know, beneficial. And also as well, anger, dealing with your anger is a really big one. I've, I've picked up on Sister Uzma talking about, you know, having these outbursts. I think, I guess, in a holistic sort of therapy, especially one that deals with abuse, there would be space to allow you to actually connect with your anger because anger is a very pure emotion uh, and we tend to mix it with rage which is the outburst of emotions so sort of separating that and coming to terms as well with that and managing your anger is a big one as well just working on the sort of self usually with abuse at the core of um, the therapy is actually the self as well and rebuilding yourself Osma, can you identify with what Ramzia has just said? She has been very um, insightful, actually. And uh, while she was speaking and I playing back in my head, I know that I've been through all these processes. So rebuilding yourself is a hard one. But um, in addition to that, I know, as she said, that in our society, in some cultures, people are not able to speak out until when they're quite older. So I was thinking, and I I think I spoke to you before as well. I'm working on an initiative where I want to help those people who do not have access to professional help 
so easily. And I want to create a support group, just a friendly ear to, so they can speak their heart out and maybe share it with someone who can just give them some tips. Okay, I'm not a professional counsellor, but maybe point them to in the right direction. So inshallah, I'll get it up and running soon, but I don't know how soon that is with the kids and everything. But inshallah, that's, I'm trying to do my best to provide support system for some people who do not have access to those professional help, who cannot have resources to rebuild themselves. Inshallah, it sounds amazing. It sounds absolutely amazing. And actually, you're really inspirational for, you know, taking your trauma and developing it into something so positive that can only help others. Do let us know, you know, when you do get it started. We'd love to support you and raise awareness for you. Ramzia, um, something you, you mentioned was about the grieving process. And I know, Usma, you said that when your grandfather was going through that pain you didn't feel that it was justice and you didn't really feel much other than you were sad for him if he was alive if he didn't die and if he was alive and you'd come through it all as you are now do you think you would report him or do you think you would deal with this whole situation differently um no i would actually definitely report him because i thought so many times was i the only one because I'm sure that he had lots of other people coming in for help at the mosque or even in his house. So was I the only one that happened to maybe if he was alive now and I've spoken out, maybe I was able to help other people. So I think that's what my thought would be. I would definitely report him. Imagine knowing the community figure he was and the love and adulation he had from everyone you would still take that courage and report him? Yeah, I would because, because I've been through so much and throughout my life and I've come across in my professional uh, career, I've come across a lot of points where I've understood where you can get the right help from and how they work. And effect it has, obviously, because it affected me so badly. It might have, if there was someone else and I could help them by speaking out, I would definitely do that. Alhamdulillah. That's great to know because we know lots of so-called public figures who are you know so respected so religious and so practicing if you like where people trust them and respect them and they are doing things that are contrary to Islam and I don't mean in just a sexual abusive way I'm talking about being a husband that's not Islamic you know treating the wife completely with authority telling them that you know no one's going to believe you you're deranged you're not the real deal. Who's going to believe you over me? You know, I'm X, Y, Z. I have this many followers. I've got this, that, the other. And then, you know, Islamically, you're my wife. You have to obey me. You have to do whatever I tell you to do. So they start to use religious uh, scriptures. They start to use the Quran, the Hadith, and they manipulate it to suit their purpose and all the while oppressing their wife. I'm not saying females don't do it. It's just not as commonly heard of. So if he was alive today, what would you say to him? First of all, I would actually confront him that do you does he even feel guilty? I would I actually want to know that now that, that did he even feel slightly guilty of what he's done to me and not just to me but to my whole family that amount of emotional abuse that he has put us through. So I just want to know that did he actually feel guilty or does he even acknowledge the fact that what he was doing was completely wrong? So Ramzia, is it healthy for her to feel that she needs to know if he was guilty or not? And how can she have closure with that? Um, I think it's a valid question to ask, really. When we're oppressed, we want to ask them. Absolutely. We want to confront them. We want to ask these sorts of questions. Uh, and I understand that at times this will allow us 
from closure. But actually, I personally believe that closure has more to do with you than the other person. You can actually close this off for yourself without intervention from the other person. And that's power to you. That's when, you know, definite and powerful closure comes from within when you detach yourself, when you've sort of um, dealt with the trauma, when you've dealt with your anger, when you've asked the right questions, when you've, you know, held the person accountable, for example. But I feel that closure doesn't always have to be from the other person. We shouldn't really wait for that. I think it's very well possible to actually close almost the case by ourselves, within ourselves. When we've sort of settled everything within us, it will close itself. Inshallah. Usma, do you feel positive to hear that? I do. I do, actually. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to say, do you think he did this to anyone else? Do you think you were the only one? Um, I can't say for sure. I really can't. But I do think it. I do think it myself that was there anyone else he's done that to? Because if he can do it to his own granddaughter. Yeah. What's to stop him from doing it it when he's an imam at the masjid and everywhere else? Exactly. That he's had access to. And this is usually Um, a pattern, really, that we see. Yeah, you've seen that in other cases. Yeah, I mean, a person who is abusive is actually, you know, it's a pattern. It's something that doesn't just happen with one person. You know, if they can get away with one person, why not with the other person? But what I was going to say is, I was going to touch on accountability because I think it's really important for our community to come to a place where we are you know a community that asks for accountability usually we shy away from this I don't know for what reason because Islam is so very clear about accountability we have you know the most clear pillar which is mi'ad which is all about accountability Allah's going to hold us to account but yet as a community we tend to shy away and and I understand that accountability is really difficult at times you have to have difficult conversations but if we can bring that into the community where people know that if they do something wrong they are going to be held accountable and not just let off you know scot-free I think possibly it could deter abusive behavior I don't know that's my thought Absolutely. It's actually a very hot topic right now. I won't go into it in this episode, but we are covering spiritual abuse and different aspects and facets of it. And one of them will discuss a current case that's under investigation by an organization called FACE, F-A-C-E. I think it stands for FACE Abuse in Community Environments. I think that's what it stands for. In future episodes, we'll be talking to Sister Alia, who founded FACE, with particular reference to the case made against a a Quran reciter called Fatih. Alia will discuss that particular case. The report hasn't been published yet, but she talks about the methodology and the actual rigorous investigation process that they have to go through in order to file a case of accountability. And it's super difficult. It's almost impossible at times to do it in our community where these figures are held with such reverence and they have a cult-like followers around them who will threaten the victims. Very rarely do victims speak up with their identity, of course, you know, because they are threatened all the time and they have threatening behavior of violence. Um, you know, I will put your house on fire, your family, you know, they will hit every vulnerable point. And I'm talking about this day and age. I'm not even talking about 10 years ago or five years ago. I I know already a a very specific sheikh and imam and more than one who has this kind of cult-like status. Coming back to what we were saying regarding accountability, we don't have a UK representative 
that does solely this. We do need a regulatory body and it's something that I think a lot of members are now talking about and how to establish one. We just have to learn from those who've done it abroad and see how we can do it here. Um, one of the things I wanted to say, Uzma, you don't know if he's done it to anybody else, but Ramsey is saying that it is a pattern of behaviour. If you were to reveal his identity and report him, even though he's not alive anymore, and I don't know what the process is for that, do you think it might give his other victims a voice to come out and, and perhaps go through their healing process, the fact that, you know, they were not alone? Although I would really love to help in that way, but due to lots of different reasons, sure. I don't I don't know what it's going to do to my family, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I really don't because... I'm at a point now in my life where I've learned how to move on and I God forbid, but I hope he hasn't done it to anyone else. I hope he hasn't because the way it impacted me, I hope nobody has gone through it. So I don't know, because he's passed away, as I said, I was really sure that if he was alive to this day, I would actually do it because people can hold him accountable for it. But doing it now might put my family in, as you said, it's a cult. Yeah, and it, it is. Yeah, and as you said, it's difficult and it will put my family through some really difficult times and I don't think I can do that again. That's fair enough. That's absolutely your choice to make and, you know, it's not an easy decision. If your family supported you, however would that change things um it would but not my family my family would definitely support me it's my new extended family that might come across and wouldn't see it as that so they might just think that it's a petty way of getting attention Mm -hmm. so i which is sad it is this is what our community does yes i told you that there was another case being discussed uh, in my community and when i said okay this is wrong they were like no it happens to almost every woman and she should just move on and me being going through it and i've been sitting there and listening and i'm thinking that you have no idea what it does to a person who's been who's the one who's getting this abuse and who's going through it so that's why i just wanted to do something provide a platform to help those people have communities surrounded by such people. Yeah. So just off the back of that, what advice do you have, Uzma, for others suffering from the same who's going through it right now? They're listening to you. When they listen to this, you know, we'll have listeners who are literally going through it. They haven't come out of it. So what advice do you have to them? And what advice do you have to those who are listening who have been through it like you? First of all, for people who are going through it, I would probably go and find someone that you can trust it doesn't have to be your family member. If you know that your family isn't going to support you, speak to someone. Go, even if it's a friend, and seek help from them. Because sometimes just speaking about it helps you to stand up to those. And I think that's one uh, major point. People who have been through it and still haven't recovered from the trauma, please do go and get some professional help. Because no matter how much we say we're strong enough, it doesn't go away. You need to go and get professional help and to be able to process it in such a way that you can actually heal from it. Not just putting it behind our in our minds and no, it's happened, it's happened, we can't do anything. No, you can still do something and make yourself feel better. Yeah, of course. And you deserve that. Everyone deserves to feel better. Ramsey, I'm going to ask you a, a final question because you do have specialism in grooming as well. In terms of grooming, um, you know, e- even with this particular case with Uzma, she was groomed to a degree, you know, with all that public implicit outbursts of threats and then privately 
doing what he was doing. He was, you know, indirectly grooming her not to tell anyone and the consequences of what will happen. So in terms of grooming, if someone is being groomed, how can we help them recognize that they are being abused? Because um, we have adults today who are you know, young adults and they're um, going away, being tutored or being taught at institutions and they're being groomed by their authority figures within that environment. And family members are being a witness to this and they can see the grooming, but they can't get that information across to the person who's being groomed. So I'm just flipping this whole situation on its head. So imagine the person who's being abused is not realizing that they're being abused, but the family can notice it. How can you help in that instance? How can we get someone to recognize what they're going through? Possibly what I would probably do is when that person does not want to confront the reality of the situation, Usually what happens is there is a technique called sowing seeds. So it's almost talking about different situations and scenarios that are similar to that abuse, but from a different way, from afar. So it usually happens, for example, in domestic violence or in court issues. When that person doesn't realize that, you know, they're in a cult, uh, and no matter how much you actually tell them that, you know, this group is a cult or whatnot, what is more helpful is if you talk about a situation where, for example, let's say, you know, there is some news of a, a high demand group and you've read something somewhere, talk about that group and talk about, you know, I believe X, Y and Z happened. Um, what do you think about it? So what, what this tends to do is, again, you know, this person is trying to deny the reality. It's better there than inside or it's better there than here sort of thing. So we tend to look at things objectively if it's afar. So actually making them realize that what happens is that, you know, if they are thinking about the situation that's quite similar to them from afar, you can bet your socks that, you know, they will be thinking about it for themselves as well. Oh, okay. So, you know, X, Y, and Z is happening. Actually, X, Y, and Z is happening as well. So what you're doing is you're triggering their critical thinking. You're almost flipping the switch for them to be able to work around that. So that's one thing that you can do, perhaps. Also, as well, I think providing, again, a relationship that is open. You know, sometimes people who are abused, sometimes when they're being influenced, they can come out with, you know, real bizarre things. And it's really difficult sometimes to hold those, especially if they're your loved ones. But actually nurturing a relationship that is open, nurturing a relationship that can stretch, you know, they can talk about it and showing curiosity without an agenda. So actually help trying to genuinely trying to understand their experience. This will allow a relationship to be built, which again is an antidote to isolation. What tends to happen with groomers and, you know, domestic violence and also cults as well, they thrive in isolation. This isolation is threefold. It's the isolation that is from the outside. It's the isolation that is in between. It's the isolation even from themselves. So they actually have to disconnect from themselves. What this relationship does is it actually helps them to connect to themselves. Again, you know, flipping that switch with the critical thinking, helping them to see from afar and also education as well. There's a couple of influence techniques that are used. So educating them about that, again, from afar. So, you know, let's say, for example, I went today to a car showroom and I was interested in a car and this salesperson was not allowing me to leave the, the shop 
until he seals the deal. And he was just coming at me and he just wanted to seal the deal at six o'clock before he shuts down. This is an influence technique that is also used in these sorts of things. Or for example, you know, creating indebtedness in people. I think I read somewhere there was this grooming technique that was going on in London where, you know, the groomers would stand next to a chicken shop and buy food for, yeah. you know, um, school, school children, right? So what happens is that that creates a feeling of indebtedness for that person, for that young person. And so we don't like as human beings to be indebted to that person. So these are very subtle influence techniques that are used by all of these abusers. So actually educating about these, you know, influence techniques, there are many as well, but education around this, I think, is essential. And you can do that, like I said, if it's not done from near, you can do it from afar. Does okay. that answer your question? I know I put it... Yeah, it does. It no, no, it absolutely shows what you can do in those situations. And I do have certain cases where they will benefit from that information. So I'll definitely be passing it on. Um, Uzma, did you want to add anything to that? No, point? I just wanted to add yeah. that thank you so much for providing a platform that will help maybe a lot of people. No, no, don't don't worry. Um, this is God's work, literally. I mean, that's how we're looking at it. And uh, especially most recently with all our other episodes as well, we've just had such overwhelming feedback, actually, and overwhelming number of sisters going through similar things that it made us realize that it's, you know, there's so much to be done. Ramzia, could you signpost our listeners to where they could go if they're being abused or they need some advice or a helpline or an organization is there any such that we can refer them to i mean there's lots of organizations that deal with these sort of abuses for example you know we have the noor domestic organization yeah. that works specifically with domestic violence and all sorts of abuse there is our charity that work with refugees called paiwand in northwest london there is the IRC in, I think, Kingston. There's lots of organisations. There's the Latif project that, that provide, you know, free counselling for these sort of issues. And also as well, I mean, if you want specific cultic sort of um, support, then I don't know many organisations with that, but, you know, you can come through to me and I have the training organisation that I work with that have many um, counsellors that work with these sorts of things as well. Um, there is the Hope Valley organisation that work up in Sheffield by Julie Jenkinson, who I trained with, who specialise in cults. Okay, what we'll do is um, we'll just drop all those links that you've given me. I will get them from you and we'll put it into our website show notes underneath the episode. So it will be there. You just have to click on the episode title yeah. to get into the show notes and you should be able to access that. Just I just want to that. say thank you, Asma, for sharing your harrowing story with us. And it's hard enough to be abused by any authority, but to be abused by your own grandfather, it's just on another level, nauseating. And it's actually the ultimate betrayal. May Allah reward you, your patience and give you justice um i know you're saying that his illness wasn't a justice so inshallah allah will give you that i mean inshallah and uh, i look forward to hearing about your future initiatives to help others who've been through similar so do keep in touch inshallah and thank you again for trusting us with your story it's an honor so thank, thank you. you thank you for having me
Yeah, thank you, Sister Ramsey. Yeah, no. Your insight was actually a great help and it can help a lot of other people too. Inshallah. Sister Ramsia, thank you so much. I've learned so much valuable and uh, critical information from you today. So thank you for taking the time to do this. There really is a fine line between uh, spiritual and sexual abuse. And to also be able to recognize this, this isn't uh, spiritual abuse, it's more sexual abuse with a spiritual figure of authority involved and who's using their position to carry out this abuse. So we do need to keep talking. We do need to hold these people accountable like we discussed, we need to find a regulatory body in the UK who can do that. If there was a fear of exposure, these figures of community, I think, would find it harder to manipulate and take advantage of those who trust them. The fact that we don't have it, it's much easier. Of course. Uh, especially in this part of the world. Just going to add, uh, Tass, if you're listening, we really missed you today. Catch up soon. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you. You've been listening to Nafisa and Tasneem. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed our show. Don't forget to subscribe, share and review. Follow us on Insta and Facebook at NotAnotherMumPod as well as on Twitter, mum underscore pod. You can also listen to all our pods on www.notanothermumpod.com as well as on all your favourite podcast platforms. Should we go to bed now? <coughs> really? <laughs> I can't cuddle you. I can't fit in your bed. Yes, be awake forever. Good night, children. Say Allahumma. Allahumma. Bismika. Amutu. Wahia. Allahumma. Bismika. Amutu. Wahia.